0: I mean, as you know, my, my approach to biography is not so much the fascination or a sort of psychological analysis of the person. It's like, what can they tell us about the, the world that they lived in? What can they tell us about the movements that they were a part of? And how can that be made more real to a reader by telling it through someone's life? And so she got a lot of stories to tell.
1: This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. By joining the Book Club, you get all new Haymarket titles delivered to your door and a 50% discount on the entire Haymarket website all for one low price. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on.
2: Welcome everybody. <laughs> We're going to have- getting started um this is being live streamed so there's a little camera there if people are interested in knowing what that is um but i want to welcome everybody my name is dana blanchard i work here at haymarket books and i want to welcome everyone to haymarket house and to our wonderful event tonight on eslanda S. E. cordoza good robeson which is a lovely long beautiful name <laughs> Um, she lived a colorful and amazing life, yet for many of us, she's lived in the shadows of her um, husband um, and been seen as Mrs. Paul Robeson. And thank you to Dr. Barbara Ramsby, who wrote an amazing biography of Essie, bringing her story into the light for all of us to enjoy. Um, so I'm going to introduce our two speakers and then get out of the way and let them have a conversation about Essie and other incredible Black women in history. Um, so Dr. Barbara Ransby is a widely acclaimed historian of the Black Freedom Movement. <coughs> she's an award-winning author and a longtime activist. Most of us in this room know the incredible work she's done in Chicago activism. Her book Islanda, of course, is the reason we're here tonight. So I encourage everyone to get a copy and also get her to sign it before you leave tonight. Um, so one of the things that impresses me most about Dr. Rainsby is your incredible ability to tell stories and particularly write biographies of amazing, inspiring Black women. So it is one of your many gifts. Um, and in Islanda, she shines a light on Essie and shares with all of us um, why she is one of the most important figures in the 20th century. Um, she will be joined in this conversation. We're very honored to have Dr. Lynette Jackson. Was an associate professor of gender women's studies and black studies at University of Illinois Chicago. She also does amazing work researching and writing about incredible Black women and children internationally. She's working um, on a forthcoming book, uh, Critical Biography of Winnie Mandela, which I think might also be discussed tonight. Um, so thank you all for joining us and what will be a rich conversation um, in person and online. So thank you. Sure. So I guess I'll start.
3: Please do. I, well, I'm really happy to be here, happy to see all of you, and happy to see this beautiful new space, um, and happy that Haymarket is reissuing um, Eslanda, um, this biography of what Eslanda, The Large and Unconditional Life of Mrs. Paul Robeson. And... Um, I'm also excited because I read the full book, front to back. I had read little sections of it before, but in preparation for this, special prize for doing it. I I read it front to back, and I'm really glad I did. It was a very rewarding experience, and I'm just going to really briefly talk about three reasons why it was such a rewarding experience. And then I'm going to move into asking Barbara some questions about the book. So, this was a great read. It's a very rich and rewarding book, and I had three reasons. Um, It was rewarding because um, it was so well researched and so full of Eslanda's agency in the world and view of the world and key struggles of the 20th century, struggles against fascism, imperialism, racism, colonialism, through the prism of of Black internationalists and anthropologists, of Pan Africanists. feminist, inclined, pro-communist, black woman writer and activist. Um, But the key thing was just the agency and the way that her agency was centered um, in terms of understanding and interpreting the world, but also creating history herself. The other reason that was really exciting, um, one of the reasons I really enjoyed the book is because I teach black feminist biography at UIC, and I'm currently myself researching a biography of Winnie madikizela Mandela, an extraordinary and complicated, uncompromising, unapologetic freedom fighter who was centrally, though not only or exclusively, the wife of a famous black man, Nelson Mandela. Both Islanda and Wendy struggled to maintain. I'm sorry, and Winnie struggled to maintain a sense of self and independence from being overshadowed by their larger than life men. And both played a central role in their husbands' careers, um, but they lived very complicated lives. And so, um, reading Islanda's biography, I could really connect to it on those levels. And then finally, because I'm an African historian. And this book, while written by an American historian, Barbara Ransby is so full of rich insights and details about um, Africa, particularly in the sort of early anti-colonial period um, and and the sort of post-World War II era also. So very rich in African details Mm -hmm. and context. Um, So also, uh, this isn't one of my three reasons but it was also like reading a who's who of black internationalism <laughs> black cultural life in the 1920s and 30s the third world movement post Bandung um, anti-colonialism black you know black pan-africanist feminism um, we read about people like uh, Shirley jo- um, Claudia Jones Shirley Graham Du Bois W.B. Du Bois um, Kwame Nkrumah and on and on and on but you read about so many people who were, but it wasn't just about name dropping. And I know Barbara would never do that, but it was really <laughs> because, my <laughs> <laughs> but it was also because her life intersected with so many people from all over the world.
2: Yeah,
3: um, uh, Henry Wallace, Nehru, Emma Goldman, I and mean, on and on and on, Zora Neale Hurston. So the first question I'd like to ask you, Barbara, is on top of all the history that Eslanda witnessed and opined upon, um, as well as made herself. um, You described her as having a well-preserved life, for instance, which I thought was really powerful. Um, And you wrote, she made sure of it. She marked her journey, maintained and saved voluminous correspondence and news clippings, published her thoughts and ideas as widely as she could." and saved many of her public speeches and private diaries. So while this is terrific and as somebody trying to write a biography um, of of a black woman um, who like Islanda didn't identify as a feminist, but I'm sort of identifying her in that way. um, This is a terrific opportunity. And I guess what I wanted to ask you is why do you think, and this may seem like an odd question, but why do you think Islanda was so committed Mm -hmm. to having such a well-preserved
0: life or Mm -hmm. documenting her life. Creating her own archive. Yeah. I will answer that. But let me just also say, by way of kind of opening, you know, thank you for doing this. And um, uh, Lynette and I met many, many years ago when she was living in Zimbabwe. And kind of, I I always think of you as my introduction to the continent. Mm -hmm. So when I wrote a book about somebody that spent a lot of time on the continent, I, of course, think of you and your work. Um, and thanks to Haymarket Books for giving um, Eslanda a new lease on life and a new audience. And I I, I can't thank um, the press enough for all the wonderful work that you do for this space, uh, for the books that you're putting out into the world, um, and for the cover of this book, which, as you all know, uh, as the folks at the press know, was my preferred uh, image of her, you know, in command, happy uh looking quite worldly, I think, um, in all her glory. So Mm -hmm. anyway. So um so the question about how did you know how or why did she preserve her records in such a way. I mean it's a contrast between her and say Ella Baker, who I also wrote a Mm -hmm. book about Ella Baker, I mean it was a chore to find anything. You know, she wrote documents and didn't put her name on them. She had things in shoeboxes and you know kind of All of that. And I I have often said about, um, Islanda, you know, it was like she was leaving crumbs in the snow, which I had to be cautious of as well. Because is she saying, this is how I want you to write my story, or is this like the documents I would find? (laughs) Uh, anyway. I think she was really concerned about telling her story and amplifying her own voice for a couple of reasons. One you allude to in, you know, in the introduction, which is to say she lived in Paul's shadows, I mean, her entire life. She was Mrs. Paul Robeson. And so I think that was a a fight to to make sure her side of things was heard, to make sure that um, she didn't get drowned out or or put in the shadows by Paul's very, very large presence. Um, The other is political. You know, um, a good part of both of their lives was was being persecuted and repressed uh, during the McCarthy era. And really, in a sense, she's also been blacklisted in history. I mean, there are a lot of pantheons of black internationalist women, and she's not there uh, because she took controversial positions, some of which I, did, uh, you know, disagree with myself. But um, but I think she felt this erasure even in her own time, and so she was speaking truth to the future. Um, Here's my story; somebody will tell it. I mean, things were meticulously documented and labeled, not only her life but Paul's life too. And we would not have had Duberman's, you know, imperfect but voluminous biography of Paul Robeson, Paul Robeson Jr.'s biography of his father. All of that was made possible by her preservation of their collective, uh, you know, documentation. So so I think those are a couple of the reasons, you know, both to to amplify her voice as a woman who had often been, you know, kind of pushed to the side. And the other was to make sure that because of anti-communism, uh, she wasn't erased from from the larger the larger history.
3: Thank you. I mean, I think about people like Ida B. Wells yeah. or Pauli
0: Murray and people who, if mm-hmm. they didn't write their own stories, the stories probably wouldn't have been told. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. The, the funny thing I have to say is, you know, I did a lot of there's, there's wonderful photos that I am happy, you know, are still in the book. But when I was doing photo research, uh, there was at least one photograph of her wh- which had been published in a book. One phot- photograph of Paul, I'm sorry, that had been published in another book in which the actual photograph, she's in the photograph and it gets cropped mm. in a way in which she's out of the photograph. Right. So I'm thinking the archive that she left was to make sure she wasn't cropped out of the larger and story, you know, mm-hmm. um, so. Mm. Yeah.
3: Well, this is kind of a follow-up, I think, particularly to what you just said, and mm-hmm. that is what led you to choose to write a history of
0: this particular his- figure? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I was just sitting around one day. <laughs> what am I going to do with myself? Um, well, I had discovered her kind of accidentally when I was uh, in... in in college in New York, and I was doing research for somebody else. I was a, a graduate, uh, I wasn't even a graduate uh, student, I was undergraduate yeah. researcher for Hollis Lynch, mm-hmm. uh, who was, uh, do you know Hollis Lynch? <laughs> 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 um, yeah, the father of filmmaker Shawl Lynch, who people may, may know more of this generation. Um, and I came across the Ropes and Files. So there are Ropes and um, Papers at the Schomburg, it's not an extensive collection. The main collection is at Moreland Spingarn at Howard. And then there's another collection in Berlin and a small collection at Rutgers. So I was there and I literally I was taking a break from my paid research gig. And uh, I was looking at some other you know collections and there were, you know, there were papers, and, and she was some of her articles were, were there, and I had not known very much about Paul Robeson's wife. Mm-hmm. And you know, you, you start to discover someone, you're like, well, why don't I know about this person? So that was my, um, the beginning of my curiosity about her. I wrote an article uh, when I was still an undergraduate about her, uh, which I don't remember what was published okay. in Huh? You know the article? I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, okay. I, I don't think very many people read it, but I did write it. And I was, um, you know, I kind of wanted to know more. So when I was thinking of what would my next project be, you know, she came to mind. And I wanted to talk about Black internationalism you know right. and she was the perfect vehicle to do that i mean as you know my my approach to biography is not so much the fascination or a sort of psychological analysis of the person it's like what can they tell us about the the world that they lived in what can they tell us about the movements that they were a part of and how can that be made more real to a reader by telling it through someone's life and so she got a lot of stories to tell right yeah so that was that was it and it was definitely fun. what you
3: feel like reading this book. Yeah. I mean, you're sort of traveling through the world and all these different yeah. movements through yeah.
0: Yeah. her eyes. No, it was kind of fun to, you yeah. know, to to write about. I mean, I discovered people like Ada Bricktop Smith, who I hadn't known about, who was a saloon owner in Paris and been in Rome, yeah. and this woman had, had been a vaudeville entertainer. I mean, she wasn't all that political, but she was pretty colorful and interesting. So it kept, you know, her life was interesting and eclectic enough that it kept my attention for the years I had to do the research and write it. As I'm sure Winnie will keep you quite interested. And I imagine (laughs) years, years. (laughs) Yeah.
3: Um, So I I think you, you, one of the other things that was really uh, important to telling the story is talking about both Eslanda and Paul's, but obviously focusing on Islanda's sort of political coming of age and kind of radicalization. I mean, she wasn't always, she didn't start off radicalized, and there certainly are um, in the early chapters, maybe even some examples of, for lack of a better word, not completely woke, you know, <laughs> attitudes. But, you know, I don't know if you want to talk a bit about that process of radicalization.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um yeah, I mean it was a time when you know the world was i mean so much was happening in the world as i like, you know every period really probably can say that but um she left they left the United States uh before world war two mm-hmm. and uh and so you know I often say she left as a kind of respectable Negro woman and she came back as a black radical internationalist and it's her experiences in the world in London where she met this you know um uh, enormously interesting, radical group of, of folks um, from all parts of the British Empire, uh, traveling to the Soviet Union, traveling to Africa, um, her eyes were opened about the world and her place in it. And so, you know, it's through the people that she met, through the relationships she built. Yeah. Um, you mentioned, you know, some of those people at the outset, but Meeting the um, African intellectuals and independence freedom fighters in London when she was at the London School of Economics, she meets Jomo Jomo Kenyatta Kenyatta. and introduces Paul Rosen to Jomo Kenyatta, by the way, Um, uh, that that really had an enormous impact uh, on her her life and going to the continent in 1936, which was a hell of a thing. You think of a black woman going pretty much by herself to colonial Africa uh, at a time when travel is very difficult, but also, you know, just the weight of a white supremacist system, mm-hmm. you know, um, um, shrouding the continent. So, um, so all of that really transformed her thinking about who she was, who she wanted to be in the world. Right, I mean, she's a,
3: she's a black woman traveling to Africa during that time, She's taking boat rides down the Congo River. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's mm-hmm. there's something about it. I, I'm not gonna
0: say it's a disconnect, but it was a little surprising, mm-hmm. just how mm-hmm. adventurous she was. Mm-hmm. Well, at okay. one point when she's traveling in in the Congo, and that's in 1946, mm-hmm. she she has she's she's going to the interior of the country, and she's in French-controlled Congo and then she's in Belgian-controlled Congo. She's going further into the continent, into the country. And she has to get on smaller and smaller planes. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so she has to leave uh, a suitcase here, a typewriter here. And and so that to me was also symbolic of her stretching herself way beyond the comfort level that she was used to as a fairly privileged black woman Mm -hmm. uh, in in her usual life. Yeah. yeah.
3: No, I mean, I've had a lot of adventures also traveling yeah, to different parts of Africa, but you know, know this was stories. the 80s, not the 40s, right? <laughs> and I never had to wash my hair with turpentine, which yeah. apparently she had yeah. to do. That's in her diary. Yeah. So let's talk about the topic of feminism. Mm-hmm. Um, you say a couple times, you make it clear that she didn't identify as a feminist. I don't know if she ever said that mm-hmm. or if
0: that's just something that you never. Encountered, so yeah, I mean, and not many people of her time did, right? Okay. Um, but you know, like when we talk about intersectionality, I just in my class the other day I was giving a lecture on intersectionality, and I said, you know, there was a practice before there was a label, mm-hmm. and so, and when you think about it, um, as Londa was speaking about women's issues, she was living a very untraditional life. Uh, she was incorporating women's you know, uh, demand for women's freedom and equality into what she was writing um, as she traveled, right? Mm -hmm. She sought out women and amplified their voices. And so to me, those are markers of feminism, even without the the label. But I didn't want to put a label on her as I did with Ella Baker Mm -hmm. that she herself didn't embrace. But I say she's in a feminist tradition, a black feminist tradition. I think you use like proto-feminist, nascent feminist. Something like that. Yeah, I did write the book nine years ago. Mm -hmm. I know. Page, page two hundred and eleven. Uh, <laughs> but related to this, I think you know I,
3: I'll connect this conversation with her. Um, the obvious importance to her to maintain her her name, Mrs. Paul Robeson, and and that that connection as a source of yeah. access and entree around the world. And I guess maybe talk a bit about that. There's this. Yeah, I don't want to get into this theories of like patriarchal bargain where, you know, on the one hand you may be a feminist and sort of cringe at being associated with a man and not being recognized in your own light, but also some practical decisions about, well, but without this name, yeah, would I have the access that I have? So I'm just wondering. Yeah,
0: I, I thought a lot about the title, um, because very few people in my world are Mrs. anybody. Right. Um and, uh, so I thought, but she, she used it as an entree. And I, I think I say somewhere in there, you know, she, she said, this is Ms. Paul Robeson as a way to get a response from people, as a way to get access to, to meetings, to interviews, to other kinds of things. because so they knew the name Robeson, but once the door opened, she walked in as a and, you know, not accompanied by Paul, not mentioning Paul, not, you know, invoking Paul, uh, Etc. And I think she really felt um, that they had a partnership, and increasingly, their marriage was less of a traditional marriage and it was more a, a business relationship and a comradeship. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think she felt that she would be um, she would get less credit for what she had invested in that partnership. She would get less recognition um, as a you know political person in her own right if she didn't have. The name. If she didn't use the name, mm-hmm. I think she didn't really necessarily feel like she was using his name after a while. She was like, it was her yeah, name. Is, yeah. yeah, and so and so she asserted it in that way. But it is a. It, there is a little contradiction there, a little tension there. Um, but she wasn't going to let it go. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she had earned to you know the right to be Mrs. Paul Rosen. Right. So she
3: put that out there. And in fact, at at some stage, she wanted a divorce, and
0: she. Oh yeah. Well, you know, it was a it was an open mm. marriage of sorts. I mean, more open for him than for her uh, in practice. But yeah, 1932, they they were starting divorce proceedings, and that's actually a pivotal time for her. Um, she goes to Paris in 1932 to get evidence for the divorce. This is before you know, "quote unquote" no fault divorces, and uh, in the process of getting evidence, that is hotel records of him being there with other people. Um, which wasn't that hard to get. Uh, she she encounters a lot of people, a lot of um, Africans living in Paris, Paulette, uh, and Caribbean um, uh, folks who are from uh, the French-speaking Caribbean, Paulette Nardal, um, this guy, uh, Kojo Tuvalu Hoinu, mm-hmm. who is was from Dahomey. Um, and she is just swept away by all these conversations she's having, the literary circles that she's involved in. So it, I think that is really a year where she decides I'm going to be different in this marriage and I'm going to be a different person in the world, whether we stay married or not. At that point, she thought divorce was going to happen. But anyway, they took a different path and they ended up staying married for you know decades more.
2: Yeah.
1: If you're enjoying the Haymarket Live series, you'll also be interested in a new book from Haymarket, A Revolutionary for Our Time, The Walter Rodney Story, by Leo Zelik. Walter Rodney was a scholar, working class militant, and revolutionary from Guyana. Strongly influenced by Marxist ideas, and living through numerous socialist experiments in the 1960s and 1970s, he remains central to radical Pan-Africanist thought. In this book, The First Full-Length Study of Rodney's Life, Leo Zelig critically considers Rodney's contribution to Marxist theory and history, and the contemporary significance of his work. As Olufemi O. Taiwo puts it, Through exacting research, exacting presentation, and careful analysis, Leo Zelig offers a remarkable contribution to radical thought and practice worthy of Walter Rodney's legacy. Find a revolutionary for our time at HaymarketBooks.org.
3: I mean, it is interesting, and it it also made me think when I was reading this of um, because working on Winnie Madikizela-Mandela. I mean, her marriage obviously her husband was away and incarcerated for 27 years, so they spent very little time actually living together. Very, a very very long like time. less than two years. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, still the. Uh, you know he was a bit uh, paternalistic. I mean, there's evidence in the letters and things like that. and I guess my question is how did you choose to address uh, well, his philandering? Um, and some might even might even say kind of selfishness relative to um, um, Ilanda. I mean, mm-hmm. did you avoid making those kinds of
0: i did I <laughs> well, I, 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 I didn't intend to. Uh, I didn't intend to. I mean, you know, it's a special. As you, you know, you again, I was happy to have this conversation with you because I think when you're doing biographies, a certain kind of relationship you have with the subject, right? I mean, part of it is a little voyeurism, like you are peeking into all these crevices of 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 their lives sometimes you feel a little protective you don't want them to be misunderstood because right. you've spent so much time together um, and all that. So, so sometimes what you're trying to do, you might not ultimately do, but I thought, you know, that I was, um, you know, being pretty candid about his, um, I, you know, I wouldn't be married to him. Let's mm-hmm. just say that. <laughs> <kidding>. um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, he, he was a celebrity. He was yeah. brilliant. He was gorgeous. He, and he, knew all that. right? And he was a principled political person about many, many things and a hero of mine. I wouldn't necessarily describe him as a terrific husband uh, or partner. So she, but she made her peace with that. Uh, right. She made her peace with that. So, yeah. And, you know, and took care of him really in a very uh, generous, uh, loving way when he became ill, you know, later in life and didn't take care of herself as well as she took care of him, quite frankly. yes, Yeah. Yeah.
3: So a central backdrop of this book, of course, is the Cold War. Um, And, um, you know, combined with both Islanda and Paul's uh, fondness for the Soviet Union, their uh, pro-communism, even though they weren't communists, um, but in a time during the McCarthy era and everything where that was very,
0: um, I'm trying to think of what my question is because that's.
3: Yeah, there's a lot of
0: ways to ask that. Um, I can answer well, without a question. Do you want to speak? <laughs> okay, this is a, okay, you can, you can say can whatever answer, you want. I can answer without yeah. a question mark.
3: But just I, about their relationship yeah. to the Soviet Union, particularly um, during that
0: period of time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and this is why, too, you know, I'm critical of that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, I think for a number of reasons. Uh, right. One is that they, and I would say that they were communists. They, they said they weren't members of the Communist Party. We don't even know if that was true or not. Mm-hmm. They, You know, they were very close to the Communist Party, very close, Communist Party USA. Um, and they, they had, they believed in, in communism. Right. So, um, so, I don't want to... Gloss over that. Um maybe they just told McCarthy uh, they weren't communists. Yeah, she did. She said, I don't know anything about it. What are you talking about? You're racist. Um but um, but yeah, they believed in communism as many people did. Mm-hmm. And you know, as as busy black folks. It did and do. i I consider myself a socialist, mm-hmm. so I'm on that side of the spectrum, as you know. Um, so They saw the Soviet Union as um, an ally of African independence movements. Mm -hmm. That was one thing that was very important. They saw the system that they, at least the part of the system that they saw when they visited the Soviet Union um, as an alternative to the cutthroat greed and inequality of capitalism and Mm -hmm. the, the, the ravages of capitalism. Uh, and so forth. And they had a lot of, and they developed a lot of personal ties. Mm -hmm. And they saw Um, it as
3: anti racist.
0: They saw it as anti racist. They saw it. That wasn't the only thing though. They saw it as a system where workers were, you know, had some power. Now, I think, you know, when people, you know, when people want to have a model, uh, you know, for their beliefs, it's easy to look the other way when, uh, those beliefs are not manifest in that particular place or system. And I think, you know, I don't know, honestly or dishonestly or self-delusional or, you know, whatever, for for many reasons, a lot of people did not criticize the Soviet Union when it was clear that the Soviet Union did not embody the um, uh, values that uh, uh, socialists and many communists hold dear. Um, They ignored the repression and the purges And so forth. And I asked uh, a contemporary, uh, somewhat of a contemporary of um, Aslinda Robson, who a black woman who had been in the Communist Party as well. You know, what did you all think during those times? And she said, "Well, it was a Cold War, and we believed that a lot of what they were alleging against the Soviet Union was just not true." Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Now, you know, after a certain point, um, you know, there was a lot of evidence that a lot of what was being said was true, Mm -hmm. and one can critique the Soviet Union and still have a critique of American, of US capitalism, uh, which we should all have. Um, But they didn't do that. So, yeah. Now her, you know, in terms of the personal ties, she had two brothers who lived there. Uh, One lived there temporarily and another one who who died there, you know, who lived there his whole life. So, um, you know, one person I interviewed speculated that she felt her brothers were vulnerable and she didn't wanna make public criticisms because of that. I, I don't. I don't know that it was that simple.
3: Yeah, and and just tell me why were her. I mean, I understand the appeal of the Soviet Union during that period and communism yeah. for African Americans, particularly in the labor movement. So that's
0: clear. But I it wasn't clear why her brother was. Well, a lot America. of people. You know, I mean, there were delegations that went there, artist delegations that went. Um, you know, the, the, you know, W. E. B. Du Bois becomes a communist, dies in Ghana. Um, Langston Hughes is is uh, a communist for a while. Richard Wright, many people, uh, many black people, saw the Soviet Union, you know, as uh, a hopeful place on the planet. Right. So it's not surprising to me that they would uh, go there. They do then make lives there. They uh, the one brother marries a Russian woman, and um, and stays. So.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, and with the backdrop of you know Jim Crow in the U.S. Yeah. and colonialism mm-hmm. and everywhere else, it's not hard to understand. It, it was just still that he lived there so long. Ago. Yeah. Um, okay, maybe just one more question. Okay, and then we can open it up for folks to ask questions if they have any. Okay. Um, you talk, I think, on two occasions. You described Eslanda um, as unapologetic and certainly as fearless. And I think of the title of our friend's oh, book. I
0: yes. <laughs> Charlene Cruthers' book. Yeah.
3: But also I, I sort of picture her sitting in front of um, McCarthy and across <laughs> from all of these, you know, white men and just holding her own. And what did she say? She said something like, All I ever feared were
0: cats. So this <laughs> is kind of Yeah, that's something she says in an interview later. <laughs> but she's yeah, in nineteen fifty three she's called before the House on American Activities Kids. Committee. And um, uh, you know, she thwarts their their questions and their interrogation. You know, asking them. You know, you know, I defend myself under the Fifth and the Fifteenth Amendment. The Fifteenth Amendment, of course, she's saying, black people still can't vote in this country. So why should I cooperate with this um, this committee? Uh, and then they asked her about her book, African Journey. Interestingly. And one of them leans over and asks her, did you write this book all by yourself? And that really set her off. You know, she's like, yes, I wrote this book. (laughs) Uh, So, um, yeah, so she was she was a defiant personality. She was she was not somebody easily intimidated. Uh, She was a short woman, but she would often walk into a room and had a very commanding presence. So she wasn't going to be pushed around by Joe McCarthy. Uh, So. um, So, yeah, she was she was pretty. Strong. She didn't name names. She didn't uh, cave. She didn't whimper. Um, and it was a time when there were consequences, mm-hmm. right? You know, people lost their jobs. People went to jail. Julius and Ethel Rosenberg had been um, executed. executed. So, um, so, you know, the stakes were, were high. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's a measure of the kind of person she was. Not a perfect person, but she was damn tough. Damn tough. Yeah.
3: Um, Okay. Do we want to open it up? Yes, sure. I don't even know how long we've been talking, but... I don't either. That's all right. Oh, all right. Only about 35 minutes. Oh, okay. I should give
0: my usual long-winded <laughs> answers. People have any questions? Thank you all for coming. Any questions about Eslanda? Steve.
2: Did she have any uh, relationship
0: with uh, Ella Jo Baker? She did not. She did not. That would have been a nice little connection, though, there, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Both had December birthdays, that's all. But uh, no, no no relationship with uh, with Ella Baker. But as Lynette suggested, she had a relationship with almost everybody else that was her contemporary. I mean, she, she loved people and she, you know, was quite the conversationalist and people felt like they were being interviewed by her when she met them. So Zora Neale Hurston, for example, is one person she has a relationship with. And Zora Neale uh, encourages her to to go to the African continent. She says, you got to go. And she's this wonderful letter from her. So Emma Goldman, you mentioned, she ends up parting ways with about the Soviet Union. You know, Emma Goldman is critical and they have these letters. and, And at one point, um, the Robesons kind of, you know, take a, you know, kind of take a distant position vis-a-vis Emma Goldman, and Emma Goldman writes a very pleading letter to them about their friendship, and uh, you know, that's that's the last exchange that we that we have. But but no, she didn't know Ella Baker. But good question.
2: Can you talk about her upbringing, growing up?
0: Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, so she's born in D.C., and then she grows up in New York City. Her mother is an interesting and pretty formidable character. Father dies when she's young. Mother comes from a middle class, light skinned, black middle class family. Uh, but they get to Harlem and her mother gets politicized. Her mother, who, who also has the name Eslanda. Uh, apparently, this is a tradition in their family. The women's names. One woman in each generation gets named Aslanda for several generations back. But um, her mother becomes a part of the Liberty Leagues in Harlem that Hubert Harrison um, is, is the you know inaugurator of and um, is in these socialist circles in Harlem, black socialist circles in Harlem at that time. So, you know, that's, their mother's a big influence on her. They have a somewhat tense relationship later on in life, but very much a part of her life, very much a role model. Uh, for her, and she's close to her brother. She's the eldest, and um, is uh, you know kind of grows up fast. Her mother works. Her mother has businesses, and you know has a beauty business, and this, that, and the other. So, um, so yeah. And then she 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 gets a degree in biology, actually, from Columbia. And this is another reason why being Mrs. Paul Robeson becomes a thing, because she gives up her career plans to become a scientist kind of against the odds in terms of what what was, you know, um, possible and open to black women at that time to be Paul's manager and to really invest in his career uh, in, in ways that she had not planned to before that. So that's a little about about her background.
2: Um, well, thank you for, of course, uh, writing this book and republishing it again. I'm curious, I have a a couple questions, but I guess I'll start with you spoke about why you do biography. And oftentimes, um, I've been in conversations about like, why people do women's history, why people do black women's history. What do you think? And you said that you don't do it because you just want to perhaps like um,
0: psychoanalyze a subject, yeah. Yeah,
2: you wrote out of individuals or tell like a great person, sort of history but to talk about how this person can help us understand what's happening. So can you talk some more about that, particularly in thinking about the writings on Black women and internationalism during this particular period of time? But what does with her story and your approach to her biography particularly add to the broader historiography of this era? Mm -hmm,
0: mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I think it situates... Black women because she then has her whole cohort of all these, many of these other people that we're talking, Shirley, Shirley Graham Du Bois is one important one who, who comes in. So I think we, we see Black internationalism through a different lens with different personalities coming into it in a different way. Um, I think uh, she, you know, the, the issue of McCarthyism and Black socialists and communists are foregrounded in a different way by bringing Islanda into the mix. But I should also say this, it's not just about telling the story of the time. It's also, you know, there's something about flawed, and and we're all flawed in one way or another, beautifully flawed if we want to be generous, right? But, uh, you know, about looking at an imperfect person's life. You know, here she's dealing with this complicated marriage and kind of struggling to have her voice. And she still makes really important historical contributions. You know, her writing's about independence movements at that time uh, as an observer for the United Nations. I mean, she, she, she is at the founding of the United Nations. She travels to China uh, months after Mao Zedong's revolution. She uh, is on the front lines of the Spanish Civil War writing a, a journal. She um, then meets many of the future leaders of the African National Congress in a conference in Bloemfontein uh, in 1936, so she's kind of, you know, there's this you know character John Reed, you know, in history who's like always in the, all these all these places where history jumps off. So in a way, she's she's like that, but she's a person that has self doubt. Uh, she's a person who is um, you know has insecurities uh, and all of that, and still she makes this enormous impact. So I feel like telling the story of flesh and blood human beings who raise kids, navigate relationships, uh, et cetera, deal with their own, you know, humanity uh, is a way to kind of make us all feel that we can play a role in history and that we can do more than we think we can do or what we're doing has the potential to make a greater impact than we might feel in all of our, you know, Smallness on the planet, you know. So, so I think that's another thing about biography that it, it really and I, it's certainly not the message that one individual alone can change anything. You know, uh, everybody who changed, up I mean, Mariam Kaba, has this thing. Anything worth doing is you have to be doing it with other people. So, changing the world is definitely that. So, um, so she was immersed in communities and organizations, um, etc. But she herself was a complicated person that had problems and contradictions. And then she was also brilliant. So I don't know if that's a little bit of a rambling answer to your question.
3: Um, this question is the
2: yeah. live stream. Okay. Um from Yvonne King, uh, they asked could you talk more about how Salon in an interview with Papagandy in nineteen thirty one? Was she acting as a freelance journalist or was she remembering a paper or a magazine or, or what?
0: Yeah, I'm not, I don't even remember the details of that myself. Uh, she, she was a freelance journalist. I think it was through some contacts that she got access uh, to Gandhi when he was traveling and uh, managed to sit down and have this interview. It was pretty, you know, that, another example of her being kind of at the precipice of all of these um, historical moments and in the presence of all of these figures whose names are, you know, now. You know, common common names, but interesting question. Things people zero in on, yeah. But that I'd almost forgotten that actually. Mm-hmm.
2: Um. Sure.
1: Yeah,
2: all right. Thank you for a great conversation. I'm um, excited to um get look at yeah. But I was interested in what you were um you know talking about our travels on the continent and um also later on. Could you say a little more about um? Her involvement. I know you mentioned like
0: the Spanish Civil War, but her involvement in the Italian invasion of Ethiopia. Yeah, I mean, well, she travels to her first trip to Africa uh, when she's living in London. She takes her then ten-year-old son with her. It is right around the time that Italy invades Ethiopia. Um, she doesn't, you know, she's not particularly involved in, in the various, South, you know, Harlem and in London and other places. Uh, there are movements and demonstrations that protest the invasion, but she's not involved in those. Um, at that point, she is on her way to South Africa where she spent some time and then to Uganda. Uh, so, so not directly involved in that, but certainly later as she, you know, comes to understand the gravity of, of that invasion. Um, she she speaks out about it. Yeah. Yeah. You get seconds.
2: Uh, uh, a method question. Um, can you talk about? I know you you mentioned that you first wrote an article in college, <laughs> but if someone is interested in writing a biography, you talk about the resources and the time. And perhaps even how you organize uh, your materials in order to write this book. Mm-hmm, and
0: what mm-hmm. does it take? <laughs> wow, about 10 years? I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, and I'm, I think I'm doing better at that because, you know, I mean, in some ways, a life provides a kind of more orderly entree uh, to a topic, right? When was she born? What happened? And, you know, you kind of follow it chronologically. And I did. Think about other ways of organizing it. Other, I don't know what you're thinking in terms of Winnie Mandela. I mean, you can you can talk about a life thematically, but we knew so little of her life. I just wanted to kind of lay it out in the process of also offering um, an analysis. I mean, you know, there's there's the collection period and the, 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 the question asking period. I first had to approach her family uh, who were very protective of the papers. Um, the son, uh, Paul Robeson Jr., was finishing his own book about his father so um, I kind of had to work around that. So the papers weren't completely open. Um, and then I had to find out what's, where supplemental papers were, which was, was the archives that I mentioned. And so, you know, I collect, collect. And I, my, my method is I write things as I collect, um, uh, understanding that that's very preliminary. So I'm not writing chapters, but I'm writing my reaction to the sources. Um, and also, you know, each source has the potential to give you leads to other sources, right? So you see a letter and it refers to a meeting and you're like, oh, she was at that meeting. So then you go to the, you know, papers of someone who was also at that meeting to try to locate the person and so forth. So, you know, again, I was fortunate with this book in that she had diaries. So at least this is what she said she thought and felt at the time, including some, a few unkind words for, Various people who she (laughs) didn't think too highly of at the moment. Um, So it it felt candid, but I also was a little bit cautious that this is the subject speaking to me. And so, you know, that has to be filtered through what her interest was in telling, you know, in in writing something down that she knew would likely be, be found uh, later. So, yeah, I guess if, if there's a method, that's, that's it. To kind of the kind of immersion in the primary sources, um, trying to keep track of my reaction to them as I go uh, and then assembling it all later and being prepared to write and rewrite many times.
3: <laughs> but also, I mean, and something that is not always the case, but in um, this case, um Aslanda had, as she said, a well-preserved life. So, I mean, she was a prolific journaler and, you know, had diaries and things like that. Um, and also was a writer herself so was constantly you know generating um this information this material and i'm just thinking about um a very different experience with Winnie Madikizela-Mandela who on the one hand was iconic and and in many ways larger than life but surprisingly doesn't have a very Mm -hmm. big archive. Mm -hmm. Um, And some, I mean, there are multiple reasons for that, you know, being under various banning orders where, you know, she couldn't be published or she couldn't speak in public and and various other things. And I, you know, I'm, I'm still trying to figure it all out, but also looking for all these alternatives, Mm -hmm. paces, Mm -hmm. but yeah, it would. And I know you're having so much material poses, Another kind. set of
0: problems. Yeah, of problems. yeah. What's important and what isn't. Right. And as with Winnie Mandela and Eslanda um, and Ella Baker, the, the interesting women have are you know targets of government surveillance. Mm-hmm. So there are exactly. government documents about you know all of these subjects right. as well, which um, you know have to be viewed with a grain of salt, of course, but uh, can also tell mm-hmm. tell stories, yeah. sometimes stories that the subjects didn't didn't know, right. you know so government records
3: that are or may not be available yet but you know you have to get access to but also often government controlled media yeah so it's being framed through a perspective that's quite hostile
2: mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yep Peter I want to ask the historian to speculate about the future <laughs> <laughs> but not the future from now the past future that that Eslada uh, that, uh, did uh, live to experience participate in and influence so with uh, the deep knowledge that you have about how she evolved during her own life what do you think would have been her priorities during the decades that came after she became dull and then died mm-hmm. um, what would she have embraced? what would she have and
0: I don't want to talk about Ukraine. Yeah. Right. No, 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 uh, no. Yeah, I mean, it's hard to speculate, you know, too much with the subject because people take so many turns, right? But she dies in sixty-five, and it's it's such a pivotal moment when the uh, anti-colonial movement in Africa is it's taking off, right? You know, you've new Africa. She did go to Ghana in nineteen fifty-eight one year after uh, the, independence. The all, I mean, just as an example yeah. of the place that yeah. she was, the yeah. All-African People's Convention. Yeah, and historic that, convention. So she, she made it there. But to, to just see, to both see the victories and the defeats of many of the movements um, and uh, ideological political movements and, and, and freedom movements that she was a part of, I think there would have been some disappointment there. Mm-hmm. I think she would have, you know, she was enormously resilient, though. I think she would have, um, you know, cheered on groups like the Black Panthers and the League of Revolutionary Black Workers. I think she would um, have, you know, cheered on the many millions of people who hit the streets after George Floyd's murder in 2020. And, um, you know, so she she was somebody who was kind of, she was drawn to people fighting back and fighting around you know, issues of justice. And so I think she would have been a keen observer of what happened next. And, it, and it's, it, you know, to die in 19, you know, it's, you know, it's no good time to die, but um, 1965 was the precipice of so much. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I, I have thought about that. Um, what what, what have, would have been her trajectory. And also it was a time, you know, the last number of years of their relationship Paul was in decline Health wise, and so she, for example, she meets Martin Luther King in um, London, and, and Paul is not well enough to be there, so she does that on her own. So I think her own independence, had she lived ten more years, you know, might have been greater than it had been for most of her uh, adult life. Yeah, but thank you for that question, Doctor Swan. <laughs> <laughs> There's another question in the line. Okay. Um, two questions,
2: actually. Um, one, about her politics.
0: Mm-hmm. So one is a um, question about uh, in what ways did she uh, contribute to Paul's radicalism and how did she contribute to her? Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, from the list of you know uh, historic events that she was present for, um, do you think any of those uh, in particular had more of an impact than any of the other ones? Mm-hmm. Those must be historians. <laughs> um, so how did she radicalize Paul and how did he radicalize her? Um, you know, she really, they, they were both interested. He was interested in African culture. Um, you know, he he was very profi- proficient at languages and he you know, often sang in, you know, other languages as a, as a sort of gesture of his, his artistic internationalism. Um, but she was the one who met some of the people in London before he did um, people who were you know from you know Kenya Nigeria southern Africa and so forth and so she did introduce him to some of those people I think they had a lot of intense um, political discussions and debates about what was happening in the world uh, I think she gave him confidence I mean we see him as this grand solitary figure this this you know unwavering person of principle but you know, he came, they came home together every night and talked about, you know, we're under siege in the world or what's happening in the world. And they had very much of an intellectual relationship. So, uh, as you know, as intellectual and political relationship. So I, so I think she radicalized him by being a partner in, you know, exploring freedom movements in the world by exploring the world. Um, and then I, I want to say around gender issues as well, uh, because they did have a struggle inside their marriage. Uh, around the, the terms of the marriage. And it wasn't just around, um, you know, infidelity or whether he was going to have other sexual partners, but he was the main income earner, but she was often the, uh, not unofficially mm-hmm. uh, a part of the team, but wasn't getting the paychecks, let's say. And so there was a point at which she was, they were living separately and she was getting money. And she didn't feel it was enough. And then there was, you know, like a struggle around that. So, and then he conceded, yes, you're right. You know, and and, and they changed the, the arrangement. So I think she probably uh, uh, brought him down a notch or two in terms of humility um, in the in the work that they were doing together uh, in ways that probably no one else could have. The second question is what, what were the events that might've transformed her more than others? I think seeing war firsthand going to to Spain during the Spanish Civil War they went to uh, provide support to the anti-fascist forces there but she uh, the person who was their driver while they were there she develops a lifelong relationship with him visits him and his family in Mexico uh, many years later and she wrote a very long manuscript about her experiences in Spain you know during the war of you know just you know, seeing the ravages of war, but also talking to enormously uh, heroic and brave people, some of whom weren't even Spanish, who had gone there in different solidarity brigades to fight on the side of the anti-fascists against Franco. So I think that had an enormous impact on her. And of course, you know, her first trip to Africa, she said, my mind opened up, you know, and she, she juxtaposed her experience of talking about politics and change and ideas in Africa, in a place where, you know, white supremacist stereotypes would have you think people are not having these sophisticated conversations. And she was challenged there intellectually in ways that I think surprised her and transformed her. So I say those two um, experiences. Yeah. And some people really listening carefully on the (laughs) live stream.
3: One of the, I mean, just to add, there's so many things you could add. So people should definitely. You, read, you read just the read the book. book. I just haven't read I, the book. See, so I, I, haven't read the
0: book. <laughs> I haven't
3: reread the book in many years. So. No, but she was irrepressible. I mean, and a lot. How long was she living with cancer? I mean, she had. Yeah, quite a number of years. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
3: Um, but ran for office under mm-hmm. the Progressive, progressive mm-hmm. Party ticket. I mean, there were just so many things that tried to
0: write. Fiction? She did. She did write fiction. She didn't get it published, but she did write it. She wrote plays. She wrote novels. Um,
1: Yeah,
3: she was, uh, but it's almost kind of frenetic almost. Mm -hmm. She's always, she's constantly producing things and they either work or they don't. But I'm just wondering if you thought about
0: like, where did that drive come from? It's just. I mean, I think she was a driven person. mm -hmm. I think she was um, a hungry person. Uh, mm-hmm. For experiences, mm-hmm. for outlets, for her energy and creativity, um, and so yeah, she she was constantly. And she also, in addition to being a diarist and a writer and a journalist, um, you know, she she also uh, was a letter writer. You know, she she wrote letters to people, like very long letters, mm-hmm. you know, and they're kind of works of art too. You know, describing being in a train station in Berlin and all the things that happened and the nuance of this and the feeling she had about the climate and uh, describing, you know, driving and, or visiting a mining compound in Southern Africa when she was there and so forth. So, so in her letters too, there is, they become another outlet for not only building relationships and networks, but, um, but just literary expression. Yeah. I don't know where that comes from, you know, right. in a person. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, would, I will say this, you know, in thinking, uh, talking about biography, I'm, I'm working on something now, which is not a biography. But the third book I did was a kind of collective biography and part of some of the uh, amazing, you know, young black feminists in uh, the movement for black lives, including Charlene. Uh, but, but thinking of biography, again, makes me think of the, a little bit of tension between both my politics, Ella Baker's politics. Um, and the kind of the way in which biography risks exalting the individual mm-hmm. um, uh, in, in, in ways that politically I think is dangerous. But again, I hope that I embed the person enough in the larger work that they're doing in the communities that they're a part of in the time that they lived, you know, that, that 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 doesn't come across as a message of how we should view history. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Are
2: there any more questions there? That's it. All right. Yeah. All
0: right. And we we look forward to your book on Winnie Mandela. Yes. Maybe maybe we'll sit here and have another conversation, Um, but that's and just also kudos to to Haymarket. just honored to be in the company of all the amazing authors that are on Haymarket's list uh, every year. So, um, so, you know, Beth Ritchie and Angela Davis and uh, Erica Miner and Gina Dent, of Mm -hmm. course, uh, most recent uh, book, and I'm sure others, and I'm not, I should be mentioning right now that I'm not thinking of, but, um, but it's, it's very special that, um, that Haymarket has uplifted this project and, and so many others. And we, We appreciate y'all.
1: Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.